I knew there'd be a Bible in here. There's five. I bring one up every Sunday and then leave it in here. That's why there's no pew Bibles. That's why this weighs 240 pounds. So uh, go ahead and turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. I'm going to read a rather extended section, and then I'm going to preach for a rather long time. How does that sound? I'm going to start in verse 43 in chapter 14. That's, That's page 1580, if you have a pew Bible and you need a little help. Or you just want it easy. Mark 14, starting verse 43. I'm going to read through till 1515. Just as he, Jesus, was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. And then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled, and a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus, and when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days build another one not made by man. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you going to answer? Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? I am, Jesus answered, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard this blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went to the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she again, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. And a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He, be- he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. 
And immediately the rooster crowed the second time, and Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes. It is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things, so again Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A prisoner with a, a man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. And the crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they all shouted all the louder, Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The word of the Lord. Okay. In um, May of 1995, I was a senior in high school. And um, this movie came out that I really wanted to see called Braveheart. And um, it was one of the manly movies of my, genera- gen- my generation. And um, I invited this girl to come with me who went to youth group with me. She, I was a senior at the time, and she was a sophomore. Her name was Teresa. And she's kind of, she's just, a, you know, this cute little thing. And, but she wasn't very outgoing or whatever. And um, so I took her to this movie. It was like a matinee in the middle of the day. And um, I just like swords and arrows and stuff like that. And so we go to this film, and... Um, if you know the story, it's about the, um, the rise of the Scottish Rebellion in the, in the late 13th and early 14th century. And um, it's about this guy, William Wallace, and how he leads these Scots to fight against um, the British king and to try to win Scottish freedom. And the main nobleman of the, on the Scottish side is a guy named Robert the Bruce, who actually, it, it, ironically, the, here's the funny thing, is that in Scottish history, the man with the nickname Braveheart is um, Robert the Bruce which kind of tells you a little bit about how the story was supposed to to play. Anyway, um, there's this scene in it where, you know, William Wallace is like getting all these Scots together and they're winning and they're winning and they're winning and they they finally get to this climactic battle called Falkirk where it's the largest British force and it's the largest Scottish force and this is going to basically decide the war. And um, Wallace comes to the nobles and says, listen, if you win, if if you fight with me and we win, we'll have a country of our own. And we'll be free. And, but the odds didn't look good. And so the nobles were really concerned because if they lost, they'd lose everything. They'd lose their lands. They'd lose their titles. They'd lose everything. And so the nobles say, we'll fight with you, but they actually all betray him. And so the whole battle goes south and Wallace ends up losing. And, um, and after the battle, um, there's a scene where Robert the Bruce goes and he talks to his father. And his father is a totally pragmatic man. 
100%. You just do what you have to do to get the outcomes that you want. But he's destroyed inside. This guy, I'm sorry, I'm slides behind here. My bad. So this guy, Robert, he, he talks to his father. His father has leprosy, and he's, and he's this way. And so there's a scene where, and the, I didn't even look on the internet. Okay, this is from memory. And there's this scene where he comes in, and the father says, you know, I'm the one basically who has leprosy, but your face is graver than mine. And he, and he said, and his father says, listen, you know, you did what you had to do. You, you kept your—you're going to have more lands, better titles. You're going to—in you're time, you're going to have all the power in Scotland. And um, the Bruce says, you know, money, titles, power, it's nothing. I have nothing. He, he said, people fight for me because if they don't, I throw them off their lands and I starve their wives and their children. But these men fought for William Wallace and he fights for something that I never had and I took it from him and I saw it in his face when I betrayed him on the battlefield and it's tearing me apart. And his father said, well, all men betray, right? I'll lose heart. And he, and he yells, I don't want to lose heart. I want to believe like he does. And he, he sort of ends the scene saying, I will never be on the wrong side again, right? It's just like, it's a great scene. So this girl, Teresa, turns to me, and I'm just about falling out of my chair. I'm sobbing so hard, okay? <laughs> I mean, I have, I have like snot running out of my nose. I'm, my whole body is heaving. I, there's tears flying everywhere. And she's, you know, she's in there. She's slightly moved, you know? <clears throat> And, um, and, and here's why, I mean, it was a man movie, I like man movies, but here, here's one of the reasons why I loved that movie so much, is because I, I knew and still know what it's like to be a conflicted man. That movie, I mean, the, the main character in that movie was Robert the Bruce. It was the, it was the conflicted hero. There was no question about what William Wallace was going to do, and there was no question about what the other nobles were going to do. The whole thing came down to a question of what this man would do. He had the power to break, take it one way or another, and he was conflicted about it. He, he was of two minds. He wanted, there was something, there's a desire for a nobility inside it. He wanted to have a country of his own. He wanted to leave his lead his people in freedom. He wanted to be like William Wallace, but he also didn't want to die. He also didn't want to lose his lands. He didn't want to lose his titles. He, he, I mean, his father said, there were 16 Robert the Bruces before you that passed you land and title because they didn't fight for freedom. Don't be the stupid one, right? And, I was like lightly going to youth groups, sort of like Jesus, had accepted Christ at summer camp, and was doing whatever I wanted in school. And so I felt conflicted. And one of the things that I realized, one of the reasons why a lot of the men of my generation really connect to that movie is that's, that is one of the most fundamental human realities. We are a conflicted race. And um, part of the greatness of the drama of Mark here is Jesus going to the cross to be the sacrifice for our sins. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that next week when I talk about the crucifixion. But in the trial and arrest, one of the themes is confession. It is telling the truth. It is, it is the fact that Jesus is the unconflicted, truth-telling, confessing one. It is that the, 
the Jewish and Gentile leaders are not interested in the truth. And there is this one figure caught between these two who is terrified and conflicted and, and wants one thing and wants another thing and is spun around and he's, he's just... And when his gut check comes in this chapter, he doesn't make it. But when, but there's another gut check in this chapter, and he does. And so, <clears throat> one, of the, one of the greatest honors for 2,000 years in the Christian church one of the things revered above all other things, sometimes to very unhelpful ends and even superstitious ends, but rightly honored, has been martyrdom. Um, the word martyr doesn't mean somebody who dies. The word martyr comes from the Greek word marturion, right? It's just we just pulled it in English and used the same letters. And it means witness or confessor. That's, all, that's what it means. And so a martyr is somebody who is willing to confess the truth all the way to the point of death, such that they proved their single and first commitment was to the truth. Because when it really came down to it, and it was life or truth, they picked truth. And what a martyr is, is a person for whom the truth is first. And for some, that means being killed for it. For others, it means a number of different things. But I think when we look at this passage and think about what Jesus is trying to do, this is what Jesus is trying to do, okay? I'm not going to slick it up for you. This is what Jesus is trying to do. Jesus wants to make a martyr out of you. Period. Jesus wants to make a martyr out of you. He wants to create a person who is so unconflicted about what they're here for, so singularly committed to the truth that they are going to be a true confessor everywhere. And for some people, that will cost them their life. For others, it will cost them their good name. For others, it might cost them a promotion. For some, it will cost them friendship or the goodwill of family. For others, it will cost you money. For, it will cost everybody different things. But what Jesus is interested in is making a martyr out of you. Now, <clears throat> there's a couple problems with, with that. Because if— if we would have gone years past um, and talked about this, I think a lot of people would have, would have said, yeah, that's right, man. That's, that is, that's the heart of it, like being willing to die if I have to for, for what I believe in. In fact, um, aside from the Bible, for a good portion of American history, the best-selling, do you know what the best-selling book in America was besides the Bible for most of American history, particularly the early few centuries? Fox's Book of Martyrs, right? Christians read the Bible and the story of the church's martyrs. But that's not true anymore. That's not how we feel. Um, martyrdom in our minds has been contaminated by um, what we refer to as the martyrs complex, which I want to breeze over this fast, but essentially the martyrs complex is a reversal of, the martyr, of real martyrdom. People who have a martyr's complex, because they fulfill one duty, they feel entitled to not have to fulfill a bunch of others. 
So it's essentially an entitlement mentality, isn't it? It's the idea that, well, because I, you know, here's a husband, because I go out and work hard at work, I don't have to be nice to my wife when I get home, right? How can I be expected? I fulfilled this duty. This is a really hard duty, and it took up 100% of my morality duty today. So there's no balance left for when I come home, so I can virtually do whatever I want to, right? Or the wife, you know, I took care of your kids all day, right? And so I shouldn't have to attend to you because all of my duty currency got used up, right? There's only so much that can be decently expected of me. Well, here's the, here's the problem with duty. There is no end to what can be expected of us. That's what duty means. And one duty doesn't conflict with another one. I have a duty to go out and provide for my family as best I can. And then I have a duty when I get home to love my family the best I can. And if going out and earning a living takes a lot of energy, that does not mean that when I get home, I no longer have a duty to my family. Duties are duties. They're based in the truth, not in our energy level. And the fact that we are so conflicted about our duties is half of what takes up so much energy in doing them so we don't have any energy left over for the other duties. Because we're so resentful when we do duty A is one of the reasons we don't have any emotional energy left to do duty B. If we would change our attitude about duty A, we wouldn't be near as tired when we went over to do duty B. You see, the martyr mentality is precisely the opposite of the entitlement mentality. The martyr basically says, I'm not entitled to anything, not even saving my own life. I have a duty first and foremost to the truth. What's true is true. I don't gussy it up. I don't change it. I don't do anything with it other than confess it. It is the truth, and I have a duty to it. It doesn't matter what else I've done. I can never put God in my debt, and I can never put the truth in my debt. If I am a truthful person, I have a duty to the truth. Period. And so when people go around, particularly Christians go around with a martyr complex, we contaminate and destroy true martyrdom. We go around self-righteously acting like we're fantastic people, not fulfilling real duties that we've got, and making martyrdom in what it is that is real, the real sacrificial laying down of ourselves for the truth look horrible because we're not true martyrs. We just have a martyr's complex. And the church is full of it, right? Because I'm full of it, and you're full of it, right? The second is the reformer's problem. I remember when I was taking a Psych 101 class in undergrad, there was this argument of one of the secular writers about psychology, and he said there's this sort of, this sort of step of morality that people take. You know, there's this sort of self-centered phase, and then there's the awareness of others phase, and then there's the blah, blah, blah. And the last phase is the reformer's phase. That's like people who are willing to lay down their life for something, right? But then he said, but then the evolutionary psychologist came in and said, well, well wait, they don't survive. So is that the pinnacle? Right? So there's this idea that, you know, if reformers get themselves killed, is that really smart? Right? You know, if Martin Luther King does something, but he gets himself killed, is he really the pinnacle of moral accomplishment? Or has he actually done something foolish, caused people to act similarly to him, and therefore taken everybody in the reverse evolutionary moral direction? It's a, it's, a, it's a problem in theoretical, in theoretical ethics, right? And here's, here's, the, here's the problem. A lot of us buy into that. A lot of us buy into the reformer problem. That, that's foolish, really. 
It's foolish to like, to go out there and to act in ways that are going to get you killed or going to get you hurt or going to get you fired or going to get you whatever. You, you got to be sensible about your duties. You've got to be sensible as a confession. Now listen, I'm not talking about being annoying, okay? I'm not saying, listen, if you really believe in Jesus, you need to get 400% annoying about how you talk about God. That's not what I'm saying, okay? I'm talking about our courage to tell the truth, not our manner in practicing how we tell it. Does that clear? Okay. Because of that, when I say Jesus wants to make a martyr out of you, even though you believe in Jesus and I believe in Jesus, what's the reaction? Well, you got to be careful with that, Nick. Right? That's how you feel, isn't it? That's how I feel. That's how you feel. You, you, you can't, you know, be careful because, you know, that can, be, that can be silly. But let me ask you this. Let me just ask you. You're a Christian? Those of you are Christians, do you want your kid to grow up and be a missionary? If they want it. Not, I'm not saying you pressure them. I'm just saying if your kid grows up and she's, you know, she's 18, she's at college, and she's like, I, I just I went to Urbana, I came home. Man, I just really feel like I want to go to, you know, the Ukraine and work with like orphan kids and starve. Would you say— Oh my gosh, sweetheart, every, every hope I've ever had as a parent has, is fulfilled in this heart that you have. Would you say that? I'm, listen, sweetie, if I have to cash out my 401k, you are going to be funded. Like this is, I am, or would you say, now sweetheart, look, the church needs a lot of senders, okay? You have a lot of potential. You're going to have a lot of income potential. And, um, you know, those people in Kiev are just nutty. And, you know, you, you can get killed over there. They don't like Americans. And so you, you need to, if you get a good job, you know, give to the church. And you're going to, I think you can serve the Lord better by doing that. You know what I mean? Is that your mentality? Let me ask you this. Let's say your, your kid comes to you and says, I want to be a missionary. They're 20 years old. And you know Somebody's going to kill him at age 22 on the mission field. Would you still bless them going? They'll be, on, they'll be on the field less than two years. What could they possibly accomplish? They're going to throw away decades of their life. What could they possibly accomplish in two years, right? Do you see, do you see the pragmatism in the mentality? But that's how I feel. Do I want my daughter to go and be a missionary in a place where she's going to die? If I knew that, would I say, sweetheart, it's not the length of your life. It's how you live it. You know what? You do what God has put in your heart to do and see what happens. God doesn't want you planning your outcomes. He wants you to do what's right and what he's put in your heart to do. Don't to think about these things. Quit thinking about how much you're going to make or what's going to happen. Or are you going to be safe? Will you have appropriate health insurance? Swear, just go and do what God is putting— don't be stupid, but do what God is putting your heart to do. And when practicalities and truth come in conflict, pick the truth. But then guess what? That means I'm going to have to do it for the next 15 years to show her. Right? And we, listen, we, so we go, martyrdom, yeah, Christian martyrs, they were, but then when it really comes right down to it, do we even believe in that? We believe in that. 
I don't think we do. I don't think I do. Do you? There was a time in the great missionary movement in the 1800s where, you know those like tacky who's who books that come out that's like this deal where like you send in a picture and you can pay like $5,000 and they'll send you a book of people like you? Um, They used to have those in the 1800s except they were done by merit rather than just by who would pay for them. And so the top young people in America were in them. And do you know what it said under like half of them? Missionary, going to such and such, going to so and so. There's this generation of students. They just, they just all, they all could have been doctors and lawyers. They just all went and got themselves killed. Most of them. Like 60% of them didn't last 24 months. At the turn of the last century, 1904 to 14 or whatever, in the Azusa Street revivals, do you know what they sent people to China with? Coffins. No kidding. Like, when I was a kid and Pentecostals tried to start churches, they'd give them an overhead projector and a Bible and say, God bless you, right? In the Azusa Street Bibles in the turn of the 20th century, they were like, here's enough money to get over there. Here's a big pine box. Here's a Bible. Go get them, tiger. And that's just what they did. We would never do that. We wouldn't, we would not, we won't go to the mission field now unless we have dental insurance. (laughs) Right? And so listen, I just think if we don't get over that, we will never be able to accept the fact that God wants, that God wants to make a martyr out of you. Jesus wants to make a martyr out of you. He wants to make an unconflicted confessor out of you. And not because he wants to just use you up like cannon fodder. He does. But, but the whole reason, you'll be free. You will be free. And he wants that for you. Okay, so that was my introduction. <laughs> it it kind of went a little long. Um, <clears throat> so here's what I'm going to do. I want to go through— we're going to skip some slides here. We're going to go th- I want to go through the three characterizations in this passage, three sets of characters, um, and I want to try to tease out a point in relationship to us being convinced that this is what we were meant to be. The first is, um, is the leaders, the Jewish and Gentile leaders. They were unconflicted men, weren't they? They were unconflicted because they didn't care about the truth anymore. They, they had cast their die. They had played their hand. They knew exactly what they wanted to do. And they were not interested in Jesus and what he had to say or whether or not he was the Messiah. They saw him as a threat and they were going to get rid of him. Mark makes that really evident in 1455. He says, the chief priests in the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they didn't find any. The whole point is this, that they didn't have like a fair trial or they didn't bring Jesus in for a discussion. They arrested him and dragged him in under sword and torch so that they could figure out what they could say that would work with the Roman governor so that they could get him killed. There's nothing truthful about that. And, and here's the thing. It, it, it's not anti-Semitic because, first of all, because everybody in the story is Jew, a Jew. So. But secondly, it's the same is true of Pilate. The only Gentile, the only non-Jew in the story, you take him to—and to, to, and Pilate, Mark says very clearly, listen, there was, there was no question in Pilate's mind about whether or not this was an honest thing. 
No question. Pilate knew Jesus wasn't an insurrectionist. He knew it. Because it says in 5, 9 to 10, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Pilate asked. Why did he ask that? Knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over. He figured, well, if he's a popular figure, I'll ask the crowd. They'll ask for Jesus. I'll turn Jesus over. I'll turn to the chief priests and say, hey, listen, I, that's who the crowd wanted. And I'll be, I'll be out. I won't have to kill this guy. They can't argue with me. The crowd's happy. I'm, it's a win-win-win, right? That's what pragmatic men are always looking for, right? How can we make a win-win-win out of this? Pilate knew darn well it was out of envy they were given over, and Pilate didn't really care, did he? The minute he couldn't get a win-win-win, he just took a win-win and lost justice, right? He won with the crowd. He won with the Sanhedrin. He just let whatever happened to Jesus, what he lost was the truth. What he didn't care about was justice. He just did what—he saw that one thing would make two groups happy, and so he threw out the truth. And so here's the, here's the issue with this. Um, villains exist in stories to sufficiently terrify us that we could become like them. That is the artistic and moral functionality of villains. That's what they're for, okay? I remember watching the movie Braveheart at 18 and seeing the nobles and seeing how they just didn't care about the truth. They were merely selfish. And I remember going, I never want to be like that. And the thing that's terrifying that ought to terrify us about villains is not that they're so evil. The thing that ought to terrify us about villains is that they are so like us. And we tend to think of villains abstractly, like villains are corporations, right? Well, well guess what? There are people sitting next to you that own enterprises, where they try to earn money by offering goods and services to other people through enterprise. They are those businesses. We work in them. It's so easy to say that it's the, it's, the, it's the corporations, it's the union leaders, it's these political groups, and those are the real villains, and we, we extrapolate, and we say, there they are, and it's not, we are the villains, friends! We are the villains. There are men and women just like us. There are men and women just as conflicted as you, and if you're not a villain, a little bit further down the conflictedness road, missing a few more gut checks than you and me. And listen, I fully believe that Jesus gives Darth Vader moments, okay? I fully believe that. Do you know what I mean by that? Like Darth Vader, he waited until the very, very end. He was a villain a long time. And at the very end, he was like, no, I don't want to be a villain anymore, right? I, listen, if you are a villain, Jesus allows Darth Vader moments, okay? You could just pick up the emperor and throw him down the chute and let Luke drag you and say, you did save me, Luke, you did. And, I mean, you, that's, the, that's, the, that's the great thing about grace is that Jesus will forgive anyone who asks for it, no matter how far along they were when they asked for it. So listen, if you're a villain, Darth Vader moment. But listen, the whole point of a villain is to terrify you to never become one. To think you could become this pragmatic. You could become like Pilate. Pilate is not made of a different kind of humanity than you. These Jewish leaders, they are just like you and me. They believed that they were really good men. They went home, kissed their 
life and slept good that night. Most of them probably. And they thought they did the right thing by God because it was a, pro- it was a process of losing themselves and losing their hearts and losing the truth. And the whole purpose of these figures and one of the reasons why Mark shows us what they were like is so that it would terrify us sufficiently that we would care to not be like them, right? The second is this. Sorry, I'm way behind. Um, Peter, what's it going to take to lose our conflictedness? What is it really going to take? Are you, are you ready to know and to hear what it's really going to take to lose your conflictedness? Um, Here's the problem, okay? Let me, just, let me just break down the problem as quickly as I can. The problem with our conflictedness is sin, when we accept the truth, a truth of any kind, any noble truth, but hopefully a fully, the full truth of the gospel. When you come to the full truth of the gospel, what happens is your sinful nature is terrified at what you might do. And so what happens is you believe the truth, but you're, and you're, you push away your sinful interest. Listen, I'm not going to, I'm not going to live for myself. I'm not going to live for these, these things that I know God hates. I know are, are, are wrong. But here's what happens. It doesn't, your sinful interest just go, oh yes we are. What it does is, you know, it's great that you've accepted these truths. And you know how they're going to turn out? They're going to turn out just like this, all the things you've always wanted. And it takes the outcomes and the scenarios that our sinful nature hopes for, and it weaves them together with the truths that we believe about the gospel. So that the, the truths that we believe and the scenarios we long for are so woven together that we're not capable of pulling them apart, and we don't even know they've grown together. Now, here's the problem with that. When the scenario breaks, what happens to your grip on the truth? It breaks too. You lose it. All your motivation all of a sudden evaporates. Think about this. Think about Peter. Think about Peter, okay? What happened when the soldiers showed up? Right? Right? And John tells us there was a centurion leader. There were probably some Romans with him, okay? So there were people with swords, clubs, torches. It was a pretty good group of people, right? There's, I don't know, 12, 13 guys, maybe a few more disciples there, but not a big group. It's late. And um, these guys show up, and what does Peter do? He pulls out his sword and charges. Have at you! Right? I mean, it's like he gets in there, and he's apparently not very good at it because he cuts off this guy's ear, but he, he, he pulls out his sword and he attacks. Okay? That's pretty bold. That's a lot of motivation, right? But then what happens two hours later? Right? He can't tell a servant girl he actually knows the guy that's being interrogated. To the point where he's so terrified, he calls down divine curses on himself in order to prove that he has nothing to do with Jesus. Think about that. Two hours. What happened? What's the difference between pulling out his sword and charging and not being able to tell a slave woman he's actually heard of the guy that's being interrogated? There's only one thing that's happened besides some time. Jesus isn't a winner anymore. That's all that's changed, right? That's all that's changed. 
In the garden, everything has led up to this. These soldiers come. They're ready to fight. Peter's like, this is the first battle. Jesus, because remember in Luke's gospel, Jesus says at the Last Supper, make sure you have a sword from now on. That could be misunderstood. Apparently, maybe G Peter misunderstood it. And so he turns, he's like, here, and so he thinks this will be the first victory. Jesus is still a winner. We are going to fight together. Let's go, let's go get him. Two hours later, Jesus is about to be condemned and killed. He's not a winner anymore. The hopes that, that Peter had woven into the truth about Jesus were pulled away. And what happened to his grip and his motivation to confess for the truth, it died with it. When your desired scenarios and outcomes weave together with the truth so that you believe that they're one, when your scenarios, hopes, and outcomes die, your grip on the truth is going to die. And the minute where you so need this truth, it won't be there. You see, if you have hopes, scenarios, and outcomes you hope will happen, that's okay. And if you believe the truth— you can believe both of those things. But be careful because your sinful nature is always going to try to weave them together and to get them so linked that when one pulls away, it destroys your commitment to the other. That's exactly what happened to Peter. And it's exactly what will happen to us. If we don't believe that we believe in Jesus, the, ris the risen, crucified Lord who saves and is seeking to redeem all of humanity and he promises us nothing— he doesn't promise us great kids. He doesn't promise us stable marriages and jobs. He doesn't promise us that people will love us. He doesn't promise us good health. He doesn't promise us any of those things. And he accomplishes things in the most backward ways that you can hardly ever predict what he's going to do. So don't try and he's not going to tell you. And so if you aren't fundamentally committed to simply Jesus, when these outcomes and scenarios begin to come apart, you will not have anything left to say, I believe. I'm here. This is, he is the one, and I'm going to follow him. And somehow, this is, I'm going to come through this in some way. And so, if we're going to get over our conflictedness, we're going to have to realize we have idols woven together into the gospel, and if we don't kill those, they will kill our grip on the truth, and we will be just like Peter, tough one minute and weak the next. And we'll be weak right in the moment when the strength of the gospel could help us. Lastly, and, and really quickly, oh gosh, is um, no articulation of the fear we ought to have of what could happen to us is gonna, is gonna make it. The, the thing that creates heroism isn't fear. The thing that creates heroism usually is another hero. Heroism tends to lift other people into heroism. And the, the, the catch-22 is we're not good at being heroes. <laughs> but we need heroes to pull us up into some kind—we need something to inspire us into that. And that's, that's what happens here. There is a great confessor. There is one totally committed to the truth. I mean, I don't know if you, if you noticed this as we've gone through Mark's gospel, but, but um, this is the place where Jesus confesses everything— it's been hidden partly till now. He hasn't put it all there. This is the first place he puts it all there. He's finally in the place where telling the whole truth about himself doesn't matter. 
He's in front of a group of people that don't care. The more he tells, the worse it's going to be for him. And he steps in front of those people and they say, are you the son of God or not? And he goes, you ready for this? <laughs> you ready for this? I am. I'm the son of God who is also the Daniel 14 son of man who will be seated enthroned like the Psalms say at the right hand of God and I will come on the clouds of heaven with divine majesty and you're gonna see it. And they're like, whoa. That's like, that's like asking somebody if they were the killer and they're like, yep. It's, it's like the last scene of the movie. Um, oh, I can't remember now, sorry. What? No. It's like the end of the movie. Um, Unbreakable, where he meets the guy at the end and he believes he did one killing and he finds out he did like 50 others. It's like way more confession than you thought. And they're like hoping Jesus will say, yeah, I'm sort, of, I'm sort of like the son of God. And he's like, yeah, I'm actually the son of God, the Daniel 14 son of man. I'm God himself. I'm going to come as the judging king forever. You're going to see it when you're raised from the dead. Like it's going to happen. I'm the one. And they're like, that was a lot. And think about this. He's not in front of the crowds. He's not with the disciples. He's not with anybody who believes in him. He's standing in front of the people who hate his guts, and they're just saying, tell us who you are so we can kill you. And he's like, you're ready for this? And that's the moment he gives the full confession. You want to know what I am? This is what I am. And he gets death for it. Isn't it great? There is one so committed to the truth and so committed to the loving application of that truth, to take the truth of God and unite it to the sinful humanity through the work of the cross, he was willing to be that confessor. He is that confessor. He is the great true martyr. He is the one who laid down all of his commitments to different scenarios. He was the one that went into the garden and prayed that death prayer where he said, I don't want to do this. I am going to do this. He grappled with the humanity he'd taken on. He overcame it, and he said what needed to be said. He was the guy he needed to be. He, he told the truth. He overcame the crisis. He obeyed when it was difficult. He is the great true martyr. And he stands as the hero that you can rise up to be like. And I remember watching that movie Braveheart thinking— you know, in my imagination, I'm going to run around and be William Wallace. But in real life, I'm really Robert the Bruce, if even that. But I want to be like William Wallace. And to a much greater extent, when you see Jesus as he is, when you see what he's doing, when you see the kind of confessor he is, when you see what he believes in for your sake and for the truth's sake, it will inspire you to be willing to be like him. So, it's ultimately going to take that. The only way to lose the conflictedness the only way to really become an unconflicted man or woman is to, is to be scared that you could fall into villainy. It is, to, it is to be realistic about what it's going to take to lose that conflictedness, but ultimately it's going to be whether or not you see enough 
that inspires you in the heroism of the one great confessor who confessed to save you and because the truth was the most important thing to him every moment of his life so that you and I could have life. Believe in him. Believe in him more deeply. Ask him to help you see it more clearly. Believe in him for the first time. Give yourself to the hero who would make a martyr confessor out of you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd, um, you'd just use whatever it is that you found helpful and apply it to the hearts of these folks this morning. I pray, Lord, that we would become a people um, not abrasive and annoying about being a confessor, but people absolutely free and unconflicted in our commitment to the truth, so free that none of the disappointments and crises that come in could destroy your ability to comfort and strengthen us in our crises or in our fear to obey or in the moments where we need to speak. We pray that you would make martyrs out of us as you see fit and make us a people who admire people who are unconflicted in following you, the one who is the truth.